Hi, and welcome to Security Explained. I'm Chris Grayson. I'm Drew Porter. And I'm Logan Lamb. We're coming to you every two weeks with tips and tricks on how to protect yourself and your loved ones out there on the internet and in real life. Today, we're talking about worms, viruses, and means to detect them. No, not the worm that is happily winding its way through the dirt in your front yard, but the worm that is mischievously winding its way through the tunnels of the internet and maybe your own device. We're going to discuss some of our favorite worms and follow up with a discussion on the canonical method for protecting against viruses, which is, of course, antivirus. Let's dig in. As is wont to do with these sorts of shows, we're going to start off with the definition of what is a worm. Um, and yes, there's the ones in your front yard. There's the little pink ones that writhe around and stuff like that. It's it's like a, it's an apt it's an apt analogy or similarity because like these digital worms very much do kind of like slither through tunnels and, and find their way through through you know, like the the haze of the internet. Um, but a worm is a form of malware that basically will propagate itself without human interaction. So it's something that you can kind of unleash onto the world and it will kind of find its own way. And um, it's particularly problematic because of this. Like it's really hard. It's really hard to control. And there's so much interesting, so many interesting things that have happened as a result of worms um, and lots of lots of information that we as the public should not have because worms got out. And and yeah, Logan, I'm realizing now that like of all we we have a list of worms here that we're going to talk about. But Stuxnet is a worm, or like part of Stuxnet was wormable, and that was the reason why Stuxnet was even discovered. I think. Uh, which part of it was wormable? I don't remember that. The um. It was it was like the infection because the the nuclear facility was air gapped and so the initial exploit was targeting some desktop machine that the USB drive was going to get plugged into and then it wormed its way through the network and then I think it like wormed its way out of the network and then it got found on the internet and that's why we even know that it exists. Hmm. But that's where we're we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So I know oh, Chris yeah. Chris uh, talk about worms. You failed to mention the worms on Arrakis. Oh, <laughs> how could I forget? Yeah. So one of the one of the things that motivated us to talk about worms today is I just saw Dune last night, and I don't know about you, Logan. Have you seen it yet? I haven't seen it yet, but I've read the books. I'm really excited for it. Oh man, I uh, it's it definitely super hyped up. Definitely. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of criticism that you can have with it, but I'll tell you what, as somebody that has read the books as well, it is very much faithful to, uh, to the books. I won't, we're not going to spoil anything here, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Visually striking, beautiful, kind of just, you know, music, sound, aesthetics, everything. I thought it was a really, really great, uh, really great movie. So in the spirit of that and, seeing huge worms on a TV screen. We're going to talk about <laughs> some huge worms that might be slithering through your computer. Oh, snap. <laughs> yeah, it's very, <laughs> very corny. Uh, so, Logan, I know when I first learned about worms, I think I, I, I first initially learned about it when I was like a teenager just because I was interested in the topic and I was like, oh, this is this is such a, such a weird thing. And then in like 
when I went to school, both undergrad and grad school was definitely a topic that came up again. But interested to hear your take. I'm like, when did you first hear about worms and how do you feel about them? What do, what do you know about them? You know, um, I don't remember when I first learned of worms. I think the first one I can remember is the I love you worm. And I think that may have mm-hmm. just been because everyone knew someone who had been hit by that. Yeah. <laughs> At least in my life. Um, and I would say when I first started getting involved in security, I was more interested in just, uh, rat tools like, um, shoot, like sub seven and, um, mm-hmm. well, what was it like back orifice something or other for <laughs> yeah, some of the names. These are so bad. It, it, am I remembering that correctly? Nah, that, that, that I, I was never big on the rat tools and, and what, is, what does rat stand for again? Like remote access Trojan? Re- remote access tool, I think. Tool. Remote access, remote access tool. Typically delivered via a Trojan. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was, but, uh, that, that was not my, my area of, of interest. So, But I do think – like, I've definitely heard back orifice before and I'm fairly certain it's in reference to something computer related. Uh, I just pulled up the Wikipedia. It's um, – yeah, thumbnail's not great. It was ni- <laughs> 1998. Um so that's a bit of a sidebar, but th- that was more of my focus than worms. The first one I remember is I love you. And mm-hmm. since then, you know, we've had a couple named worms that have gotten public attention. Mm-hmm. But in recent years, they're so prevalent, like the delivery mechanism that yeah. it's yeah. not even worth noting anymore. Uh, that, that's interesting. That's an interesting take. Yeah, the back in the day, back in the day, I'm dating myself. Decades <laughs> ago, uh, it was novel, right? Like it was. That, that's it was. I hadn't actually not not actually thought about this. Like you would specifically be called out as a worm if once you infected something, you just continued to propagate because that was so unique. But yeah, like the modern malware. A lot of it actually includes this, like pretty much all of the crypto crypto uh, ransomware stuff will have a way to propagate itself across the network. Maybe that's the big the big area because outside of outside of stuff that is just slamming ransomware, I'm not aware of really any other big wormable or worming um, malware presently. I can't think of any. Like the, the the big examples that I'm thinking of are like WannaCry, and that is crypto ransomware. Yeah, it might just be that um, crypto ransomware is that prevalent now, and yeah, the, the worming mechanism is just commoditized. Yeah, <laughs> oh, know. ransomware, gross, gross. It's not even cool. <laughs> why can't <laughs> like, we have nice things? Why can't we have nice things? I know there's at least like I guess uh, yeah, slight tangent. You know, in a lot of these things, when we're talking about something that is particularly malicious or nefarious or whatever that actually results in a lot of harm. One of the things that just like as a as somebody that likes technology and as somebody that is like you know an engineer and, and things, you, you can have kind of like a, a technical fascination with something and be like, that is at, like, look, the the purpose that it's being used for is really bad. I don't agree with it. But you have to give like that's actually a pretty interesting way to have done something. And I feel like I can say that about a bunch of stuff, but I just Crypto ransomware, nah, like kill you just encrypting files and then hold him for hostage. There's nothing. There's nothing novel about this. There's nothing interesting about it. You're just kind of you're just kind of an asshole. 
It's so effective. It's so yeah. effective. Yeah. All right. Well, we <laughs> well we have an episode on that. Yeah, we have it. Yeah, we have it. We, yeah. If if you do want to hear more about ransomware, please refer back to our episode where we talked about it. I do not know what episode that was, but it's within the past twenty eight episodes because that's all we have. Um, yeah, worms. Worms have always been a thing that I found particularly interesting, just because the the I think it's like the sentience of them. And I think that's one of the things that really caught my eye as a teenager. It was like, whoa, you can write software that replicates itself, that like you don't have to control it, you don't have to tell it what to do. And granted, that's not that's not a fully accurate understanding of how it works. And I, I didn't fully understand it at the time. I'm sure. Sounds still, pretty cool. It sounds super cool, right? Like it does. <laughs> it sounds that's something straight out of a sci-fi book. Um and myself being you know, I, I've spent a decent amount of time in academia. I do really like kind of academic um, academic endeavors. Let's say, I guess we'll just we'll just jump straight into the famous worms with this with this reference. The first worm to ever be created was created by accident, and it was not intended to be malicious. Um, and it was called the Morris worm, and this was back in 1988 at Cornell University and there's this guy with the last name of Morris that wanted to know how big is the internet and it's like oh well how do you measure that well you could just go count every computer but hey as a human that would take a lot of time so why don't I just write this software that will try to do that for me and so this software that he wrote which is known as the Morris worm um, was intended to only be run within a small network, and so it was, didn't propagate uh, propagate elsewhere. But this is, you know, this is back in the 1980s, where the state of security was largely non-existent in comparison to where it is today. And so, this individual writes this software, launches it with the intention of like every single one of these machines get a phone home and say like, "Yes, I am a machine on the internet," and it's going to be able to understand the size of the internet. Cool academic research. It's great. Um, so it turns out that it escaped, and because Whoops. there was, yeah, yeah, and this is this is the recurring theme here with a lot of these things. It escaped, and it started infecting a bunch. Well, it started installing itself on a bunch of machines that it was never initially intended to be on. Um, and so, this document that I have in front of me says that it was over six thousand Unix machines, which you know. 6,000 doesn't sound like a particularly large number now, but in the 1980s, there were far fewer computers than there are now. So, 6,000 is is not something to sneeze at. And the amount of damage is between 10 and $100 million because those machines were just like fully bogged down. <laughs> Turns out that Yo. even malicious software can have bugs, right? Where it's like, oh, taking up too much CPU or taking up too much memory. So, yeah, this thing was an, an academic research project going out i want to know how big the internet is and like whoopsie daisy i just unleashed the world's first worm or at least the the one that is largely understood to be the world's first worm that propagated across the internet and took down a bunch of machines that's how crazy is that um yeah i I don't have any research projects that have ever been that interesting or that cool (laughs) or that damaging i um i don't know how well it fits here but I often think about how um, technology isn't, you can't fight it. It's always coming and it can be used for good applications and bad applications. And this was an instance where 
we have some new tech, let it rip. And then it was just accidentally really bad. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's kind of frightening. It's, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. It is unique to our modern age, unique to our modern experience. And I can't, I'm not finding, I'm not finding the infection vector that the Morris worm used. Um, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. Yeah. Um, apparently, there was. Uh, it's described as a hole in the debug mode of send mail. Gotcha. And then there was a buffer overflow in finger D, which I do remember that. Oh, so this was an actual memory corruption exploit. Partially. Yeah. Oh, that made that's way more interesting. Oh, that, that is way more interesting. <laughs> okay, so 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 now you get into the debate as to like, is this actually ethical research when? You have a uh, you you don't accidentally trigger a buffer overflow into a successful exploit. That is very much an intentional thing that you do, and this was clearly very making much. use of it. So, so this was not just like oh yeah, there's some open service that doesn't have any credentials or, or anything like that. It's like oh no, this is a memory capture vulnerability <laughs> that it's exploiting uh, across the internet on this service that I'm guessing is like pretty much ubiquitous on every one of these Unix machines. Hey, Chris, um, nah. you're going to love this. There's a Metasploit module for it. Yo, I, <laughs> I do. I do like that. We, we should get HD more on here. I would love to have HD come talk with us a bit about Metasploit and the stuff That'd that he's currently working on. That would be great. Um, yeah. But that's that Metasploit has a module for everything. I'm willing to bet whoever authored that module was also just like, this is, this is one pouring one out for the homies of like years ago, this OG... Exploit. Oh no doubt, yeah. Because yeah. I can't, I can't imagine that it's all that useful today. I mean, disclosure date: November second, nineteen eighty-eight. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, um, isn't it? So the the second one that we have to talk about here is the one that you brought up, Logan. Do you want to tell us a bit more about the "I love you" worm? Sure. So. Um... Let's see. I'm going to have to pull up some reference material. But as I remember it, it was circa like 2001, something like that. And the way I Love You worked was people would receive an email in their inbox and the title of the email would be all caps, no spaces, I love you. And of course, um, the vast majority of people would be interested in in an email like that saying like, who on earth is sending me this? You click it and then I believe you had to download an attachment, which was a visual basic script. And then you ran that and it would self propagate from there and just send the email out to everyone in your contact list. <laughs> and that, that brings us to why, why worms are so one, one method of propagation with worms is you have an actual active exploit that you can launch against various systems. But I think this one really highlights the, uh, it's almost like a social engineering attack, right? It is. Cause this thing would get your contact list and then send an email from you to these other parties. So you're kind of like piggybacking on the trust of that, that somebody has with the people that they are contacts with. And this is, you know, 20 years ago. So you probably probably have fewer email addresses. You having somebody else's email address infers that there's a higher level of trust there than you, you do today, than you would have today. Um, 
that that's particularly interesting. That's like, oh yeah, I love you going to play on your kind of like human emotions. And it's coming from somebody that's it's like, oh my gosh, Susie sent me a love letter. I really want to know what's in it. Click on it. And turns out you love everybody else too now. <laughs> I, I, I'm i looking at the page. It was, um, it happened in 2000 and the attachment was all caps love letter for you dot text dot VBS. <laughs> dot text dot vbs classic move the double extension that is classic Uh, for those who uh don't know in windows by default it does not show the file extension of your files so doing the double extension if you have file extensions turned off uh the file name will say it's a, a dot text file Mm-hmm. which is totally safe to open. But in reality, it's malicious code. Mm-hmm. And so if you have file extensions turned on and you see a .vbs, don't open that. Or a .exe, don't open that. The double extension. It's such a... It's, it's a classic. It's, not, it's a classic and it's not even just a classic within files. It's also a classic within domain names. It's uh, like, as as a brief aside... Logan, have you seen how you can include HTTP basic auth parameters in a URL? What? Yeah. Really? You do like, I think it's username, colon, password, and then an at symbol and the domain. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. So, this is officially deprecated in Chrome. Yeah, I think I think I'm remembering that correctly. Officially deprecated in Chrome because they see it as a security vulnerability, specifically because it's great for phishing. Because if somebody doesn't know about that colon, you can just have like the username and password be absolutely anything, and it will look a lot like a valid uh, email address or sorry uh, URL, oh. and then put the real URL after the at sign, um, and it will automatically go to that thing after the at sign. So it's a way to just kind of like content buffer what a user is most likely to look at. And then put the actual malicious stuff out of out of sight. We should do an entire episode on misdirections like this. Ooh, because I immediately think of uh, puny codes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like UTF-8 encoding and yeah. Ooh, all right. Throw yeah, we should books. save that misdirection. <laughs> Are you gonna type that out or am I? Uh, I'll do it. All right, sweet. In that case, I will continue on to the next. Uh, worm that we have in our list which is the very wow what a cool name nimda nimda worm n-i-m-d-a and you might be wondering why is it called the nimda worm and it's because nimda is admin backwards super creative and this is another this is another piece of malware that kind of came out in the early 2000s this one was in 2001 but Specifically, this one was September 18th, 2001, which means that it was seven days after the 9-11 attacks. And so, there was a lot of kind of wondering, hey, is this big attack related to the uh, terrorist organization Al-Qaeda that um, attacked the, the Twin Towers? I don't think it was ever proven out to be. It was just kind of speculation. Um, but this was this was a big deal. Like right in the early 2000s, we just kept getting like hit after hit after hit of these various worms 
that were doing all sorts of nefarious stuff. And it it might be that it's downloading your files. It might be that it's just like infecting your computer to be a botnet. They're, they're doing all sorts of different things, but they're using all these new novel techniques or novel exploits to, to do this propagation. So, in this case, Nimda was using email similar to, uh, similar to I love you. It was using open network shares. So, that's going to be, you know, if you're on a corporate network and there's some like remote folder that you can access... Uh, without authenticating, or maybe maybe you have your home directory, you know, you have your de- desktop that you log into, but then if you go to the lab and you log in there with the same credentials, you get the same home folder, that's a network share. And so they were abusing network share capabilities to, to propagate. They also had malware that was coming out on like compromised websites. Uh, it was exploiting various core vulnerabilities within Microsoft's flagship web server. So if you were running a web server that was hosting a website or anything and you're running it on Microsoft Windows, like Windows Server, whatever, you're probably using one of these services that was that, that was vulnerable. And then lastly, and this is I think the most the most interesting one, is this was making use of holes left behind by older malware. So in this case it was code red two. And the S admin D slash IIS worms. So basically, this other malware had kind of like made its way across the internet and left this slime trail of like holes and vulnerabilities and exploits, whatever. Because like, look, oh, and it, it was just piggybacking, and it was piggybacking on top of it. Which, which, from my understanding, never having been a botnet author, from my understanding, one of the like, if you are if you are a big player in the botnet author space, then one of the ways for you to increase the size of your botnet is to go after other botnets. So instead of trying to find vulnerabilities in installed software, you find vulnerabilities in other botnets where you can either like hijack the uh, command and control or like they have a vulnerability in their own software that they installed or they left a backdoor or something to that, that effect. And, you, and so you have botnet authors actually like taking, you have, you have botnet authors taking big chunks of each other's botnets as part of the way to like build their own. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's uh, Nimda a week after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, but the one of the first cases where it's like, oh, yeah, this is this is piggybacking on top of existing worms that have made their way across the Internet already. Uh, what's up next? So now having talked about Nimda, let's let's talk about kind of one of the next evolutions of this kind of like worms arm race. And this one has a special place in my heart, and it's Conficker, C-O-N-F-I-C-K-E-R. It's it's largely kind of the same story of, you know, using social engineering, using emails, using exploits to, to propagate. But the thing for me that 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 as soon as I was like reading about this again, I was like, ah, I remember that. MS-08-067 is a Microsoft security bulletin for a critical patch, critical security patch that needed to be applied. Um, I'm fairly certain, yeah, MS-08 would mean that it was in 2008. Uh, But the reason that I recognize that is in my days penetration testing, 
what the the same piece of software that Logan referenced earlier, Metasploit. This was kind of like the mainstay. You'd always be using Metasploit, and and in a lot of cases, the exploits wouldn't work because as soon as an exploit is available in Metasploit, there's way, way, way more people trying it. So the visibility goes up, the the the, the need to patch quickly goes up, and so it typically gets patched. So Metasploit, pulling it off the shelf and and like trying to use any of the vulnerabilities, any of the exploits that come in them. In most cases, won't work specifically because Metasploit makes it so much more visible. But I absolutely love Metasploit, and I would do network penetration testing. So the whole deal is: can you break into this company? And once you are on their internal network, what can you find? Well, one of the first things you would always try is try running Metasploit. And if you're in a Windows environment, you would try the exploit for MS08-067, and so that. My formative years as a penetration tester, MS08067 was something that I was using all the time, or at least attempting to use all the time. And what is MS08067? So it, it's it's the patch number for uh, the vulnerability that the configure worm was using. And it is a memory corruption vulnerability in a protocol called SMB. I think it's Samba Message Bus. Is that? Am I remembering that correctly? Do you know, Logan? Uh, I don't know, but that sounds about right. Close enough. Hey, let me check my no Samba message. <laughs> I'm completely wrong. No Samba's Samba's. Are we gonna make a, that think, mistake again? <laughs> I think it's Samba's an open sourced version of SMB. I'm gonna have to look that up as well. But SMB is server message block. Cool server message okay. block. But the thing is, SMB is kind of like the core protocol that Windows machines would use to talk to each other. So if you are if you're on a you know Windows machine and you're going to go like remote desktop into another machine, actually, I guess maybe not remote desktop. If you're going to connect to another system to grab files off of it or you want to remotely access anything, like if you want to authenticate with another machine, you're going to use SMB or a server message block. Now, when you're in a Windows corporate environment, you can pretty much rest assured that every single machine is going to have this protocol turned on. So you can talk this protocol to them. And you can also pretty reliably, uh, you can you can expect with reasonable reliability that in a corporate environment, all of the devices are going to be roughly the same operating system version and patch level because that's just how it works. You hopefully. roll it up. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> or it's a smorgasbord and it's probably going to be more vulnerable in that case. But, um, you know, this exploit is basically a memory corruption vulnerability in a core Windows protocol that, as far as I remember, is enabled by default. And if you turn this protocol off, you effectively break your network because no, nothing can authenticate to each other anymore. So, so that was one of the things that was particularly devious about Configure is it's targeting something that you can't just turn off. You have to get the patch from Microsoft, which I think they they you know rushed this one out as soon as possible. But this is this was a big one because it wasn't just like I need a username and password. It was if this default Windows service is exposed to the internet, you're most likely vulnerable, and I'm going to get in now. Man, that is so high impact. Uh, yeah. I love it. Yep, yep. And I think Eternal Blue is, uh, which we're going to talk about uh, here in a little bit, is is of the same vein. But this was the first one. Uh, wasn't Eternal Blue an SMB exploit as well? Yes, yes, it yeah. was exactly. Yeah. But it wasn't. It, it. I think this is the one that kind of got Microsoft to be like, oh my gosh, 
we hold, basically by the time that WannaCry had come around, they had already done this at least once before. Uh, um, everyone was already giving the side eye to SMB. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's so many problems with SMB. Just wait till I talk about Qualys. Uh, so one one other point of note here um, that that kind of puts configure on a different level, and one of the one of the themes that you should be sensing with these different worms that we're talking about is we're getting kind of an evolution of of complexity. Like they're getting stronger, they're getting better, they're improving. Turns out that's you know in in the good world. Software takes a lot of time. You invest in it, and over time, it becomes better and better and better until it's like really good. The same thing has been happening uh, with computer worms. And this one, Configure, when installed, it actually would start proactively disabling defenses on the device where it was installed, such as it gets rid of automatic backup settings and deletes restore points. So it's like, oh, my machine's been oh, compromised. No. Let me restore it back. Like, oh, you don't have the restore points anymore. Um, and it would also use a centralized command and control server. So it would actually reach out to some some centralized server and start getting new instructions as to what it's supposed to do next. So this is this is 2008. This is things are starting to get real spicy in the worms game. Uh, but I think Logan, you're about to tell us to one that's uh, tell us about one that is a bit spicier. WannaCry. Okay, so if Configure is an jalapeno, what is WannaCry? Ooh, habanero? I don't know. One of those, one of those really hot and spicy sauces from that show. With the uh, hot ones. Oh my god, that's a great show. Yes, that one. Uh, I'm going to say it's a scorpion pepper because okay. I like them. I, I like it. That's good. Okay. So we've already talked about Wanna Cry at length on the uh, malware episode, but to recap, Wanna Cry it's a crypto ransomware. Um attack that took place in 2017 it infected hundreds of thousands of machines and impacted huge multinational corporations it it infected you know governments um academia it it spread very quickly and the mechanism by which it spread is what the, the reason we're talking about it it to worm around the internet, it used Eternal Blue. And Eternal Blue is yet another SMB exploit. But what makes it very interesting is it was leaked by the Shadow Brokers. And the Eternal Blue was originally, I think it was developed or discovered by NSA. Yeah. So, I remember hearing that. As a, and that was, that was the whole debate around this is like, wait a second, NSA. If you're finding these vulnerabilities that are prevalent across all of these systems within the continental United States and you're withholding them, isn't that unethical? And I don't remember where that debate went, but I thought that was a pretty good point. But also, NSA is going to NSA. NSA is going to NSA for sure. <laughs> I, I just remember that I remember WannaCry hitting um, some hospitals, FedEx, um, I think some banks as well, but... It was a big deal, um, but it really is more of an evolution. It's another SMB worm at its core. But we we have one more worm on the list that I really want to talk about because it's my favorite worm. But we did mention Stuxnet before, and so 
Stuxnet, it's another thing that we've talked about before. We've had Kim Zetter on the show. She wrote kind of the canonical book on the piece. But Stuxnet is something that happened a number of years ago where it was malware that infected this nuclear enrichment facility in Iran, the Natanz nuclear enrichment facility. And it did a host of really devious things, but effectively set the nuclear program back by a significant amount of time, like I think on the order of years. And the way that uh, the facility is air-gapped, which is to say that you can't connect to the nuclear enrichment facility via the internet. Um, So my understanding is that they took the malware and put it on a bunch of thumb drives and dropped the thumb drives in the parking lot. And of course, what are people going to do when they find free thumb drives on the ground? They plug them into the machines where they're working. And so that was the initial infection vector. And then the malware made its way through the network and targeted like other machines and somehow made its way off of the network and started targeting machines that were not in Iranian nuclear enrichment facilities. <laughs> and that, that escape, I think, is a good way to kind of close the circle here of, you know, we started with the Morris worm back in 1988, where it's just this academic endeavor to measure the size of the internet. But whoops, you didn't, you, you, you didn't think about this way that it might get out. And then you fast forward to, geez, when, when, was, when did Stuxnet actually happen? Uh, I think it was uncovered, uncovered in like 2010. So you fast forward 22 years later. Yeah, yeah. You, you fast forward 22 years later, you have some of the most elite exploit developers in the world making the, this like significantly invested in malware and they still make the same mistake and it still gets out. And that's how we know about it. Nuts, nuts. Also, Stuxnet is a suit like that. Th- there's th- there's a whole rabbit hole that you can dive down into with with Stuxnet. And um, what what's Kim Zetter's book on the on the topic? The Countdown to Zero Day. Countdown to Zero Day. Go read Countdown to Zero Day if this stuff is interesting to you, especially if like nation state espionage meets cyber warfare is interesting to you. It's the best accounting of what happened with Stuxnet that I'm that I'm aware of. And that brings us to, I mean, Logan, I think this is both of our favorite worms, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah of course. Given. Uh, and this one I also heard about in, in grad school. And this one's the Sammy worm. And the Sammy worm is, I think, I, I think I throw it in the same category as, as the Morris worm as like, this is an academic endeavor or something meant to be funny or lighthearted or whatever. Uh, but basically, there's this guy, Sammy Kamkar, who is on MySpace. And he finds a vulnerability on MySpace where uh, if you write a comment to somebody else, then the content of that comment, if it contains HTML and JavaScript, will actually execute in other people's browsers when they view that person's page. So, if, if Logan has uh, a MySpace page, which I'm sure he still does, and then I have a MySpace page and I go to Logan and type a comment on his page, I'm like, hey, Logan, whatever. When somebody else views Logan's page, if I had put any HTML or JavaScript in the comment that I typed out, it would run on that visiting person's, um, visiting person's uh, browser. And so, what did, what did Sammy actually do with this? Well, he basically put a worm together that would write onto other people. So basically, let's say that he targeted Logan. 
when Logan, any anybody that saw the uh, anybody that saw Logan's page after that would then take the same comment and post it to all of their friends, and then anybody that saw any one of those pages would take the same comment and post it to all of their friends. And the message, let's see, it says, "But most of all, Sammy is my hero." So in a very oh. short amount of time, the message, "But most of all, Sammy is my hero," was replicated across, I think, all of MySpace and. I think they had to take MySpace down to to take care of it, and this was all <laughs> having having spoken with him about it. It's something that was like, "Oh, this would be fun," and then got out of hand very quickly. <laughs> and uh, and he was raided by the United States Secret Service back in two thousand six for releasing the worm. How nuts is that? Yeah. I completely forgot that. Yep, that's wild. Yep, yep. For for reference, uh, we we know Sammy, and Sammy is an absolutely great guy, and is like probably the smartest person I know, and is doing all sorts of really cool research and in various kind of like areas. So, it, like the guy would never hurt a fly. Um, so the fact that for he sure. got raided by Secret Service is, I mean, I'm I having had, trouble visualizing that. Yo, uh, yeah. right, and and also it's just yeah. That we could do a whole other. Ep- we should we should get somebody to talk about the computer fraud abuse act. We should get a lawyer on here to talk about. The- Ooh, if we could get somebody from the EFF or something, that would be. Tell us about the we computer fraud abuse act because the 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 outsized um, negative impact that getting involved in any sort of thing that could be misconstrued as cybercrime. Like for instance, the guys that looked at the HTML or the the people that saw the HTML on the Missouri website. That are now potentially gonna get like how oh, oh special place in my heart for for hating these sorts of things. But you you do anything that could even barely be misconstrued as potentially hacking, and there's serious serious uh, implications for your well being. And for, yeah, for ref- oh yeah, go for it, Logan. Oh. <laughs> I don't even know what I was going to say there. I I also get really worked up over that. Um, you know, just from our experience in Georgia. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. Nuts. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's we've run down the list of worms, and we're going to hop into antivirus here in a second. But the you know we we always want to talk about how you can potentially protect yourself, and I think with worms, the two things for me the the really common the common theme across a bunch of these are like they didn't have up-to-date antivirus or they didn't have all their services patched so basically have some modern form of antivirus keep your stuff patched and up to date and that's probably going to be the most effective you're not you're not it's no silver bullet but it's probably the most effective way for you to stay safe with respect to uh worm software yeah it's a really easy lift (laughs) <laughs> and, you, and you get a lot of coverage. Yes. And that that's a great segue into the what we t- want to talk about here is at the back end of our show, which is antivirus in particular. And and I'll dispel some myths about antivirus and give you a realistic understanding of what it's actually going to do for you should you use it. But uh, Logan, can you give us a bit of background on what what is antivirus? Sure. So, um, generally, an antivirus is some suite of software you install on your computer. And it, the idea is that it protects you from malicious software, malware. 
And there are a couple of ways it can do that. Um, probably the first way antiviruses worked was they would just scan all of the files on your hard drive on some interval. And then if anything, if any of the files matched a signature or if the antivirus was able to identify the file as malicious in some way, it would either delete the file or quarantine it. And I think that was like the first gen of malware. Since then, and this came, this next part has been available in antiviruses for like 20 years, I think, is um, they have an agent that's running in the background at a very high um well, I just want to say like ring zero. It's running at a very high permission level. And these antiviruses um, basically intercept every time you try to open or use a file. And when you open it, it starts an on-demand scan of that file. And I'm sure many of our listeners have encountered this. I know I have, where you download a file and then you click it and your antivirus will pop up a window saying, Hey, now, I don't, I don't know if you really want <laughs> whoa, to open whoa, this. Whoa, whoa, calm down. <laughs> and, and that's when you say, no, Norton, I got you, fam. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. And then you, you yeah, open it anyway. And then you're part of the Sammy worm. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's how it goes down. <laughs> yeah, so um, antiviruses, uh, they're agents that run on your computer, protecting you from malware. They do periodic scans. They intercept... Um, Basically, all of your interactions with your computer to kick off scanning of your files. And they are generally very um, effective for malware that has been out in the wild for a while. Long enough for the companies to create signatures to identify um, to identify the malware. But if you're... If a malware author creates you know, a new piece of malware and puts that online, then the AVs no longer have signatures available to identify it. So they have to fall back to using heuristics. And these heuristics are actually, uh, they're also very effective because malware generally does a couple things that are nefarious, right? If you had malware that was only... I don't know, defragging your hard drive. And you might be like, oh, cool, thanks. You know, that's not so bad. (laughs) (laughs) But malware tends to uh, try to get, uh, you know, launch an exploit, get root, modify core system files. And uh, heuristics exist uh, to identify that sort of behavior. The, The issue with that is there's also legitimate software that does that. So then you run into this issue where if the heuristics, the heuristics can be good, incredibly good, effective 99% of the time, but it's that last 1% of false positives that causes people to either not install an AV, disable it uh, for some duration of time. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's just the false positive rate. I think that's the biggest reason people don't install antiviruses. Uh, what do you think? I mean, that 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 lines up, and it's also 
we've talked about we we should do another we, we're having all these great ideas for for follow-up episodes but apparently we just need to actually do shows to get ideas right <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the it, it's the feedback loop one of the core security principles uh that that i'm consistently dealing with is if you design security controls in a way that negatively impact the people that you're trying to protect they will go around them and so this, you know, what you're talking about with like, well, as soon as antivirus makes my job hard, I'm just going to get rid of it is very much like that's not a flaw of the person. That's a flaw of antivirus, right? Like you, you have yeah. to make a tool that is actually going to stay enabled uh, despite the fact that you know, it, it has to be fairly invisible. But there's there's a bunch of problems with antivirus. And the the one that comes up, the the first thing that comes to my mind is you know going back to what I was talking about before, where I would do penetration testing and I'd be on a corporate network, and my next step would be to propagate my access and try to get everywhere. Well, in Windows environments, you have these uh, these I think they might even be called SMB tokens, but they're effectively authentication tokens that sit in system memory, and that's that's how like you know if computer A is talking to computer B, and computer A is authenticated to computer B, then, then the authentication token that computer A has used to prove their identity is currently sitting in memory on computer B. And if you don't terminate, if computer A does not log out correctly, then it will just sever the connection and that auth token will remain in memory on computer B for some amount of, some indeterminate amount of time. Well, I was on this one penetration test where they, one of the enterprise antivirus products and like vulnerability scanner products that you'll find in, find, find in various companies is called Qualys. And I don't know if this was the way that it was supposed to be installed, but there was basically this Qualys agent that was given authentication or given permission to authenticate to the entire network of machines for this entire company. And I managed to compromise a single one of those machines. And I say, show me the authentication tokens that are currently sitting in memory. And there's the Qualys token. I'm like, oh, let me oh, see no. what permissions that gives me. The thing had the ability to log into every single computer on the entire network. So all I had to do was compromise any computer on the network and then use Qualys's authentication credentials, which are just sitting on every computer in the network to access every other computer. And so, so this is an example of there's this security tool that we installed that is supposed to make us more secure, but it turns out that it is the way that this, that me, myself, was able to break into everything else. Chris, can you think of a more pathologically like bad case? <laughs> I the, it's, it's why it comes to mind so quickly, right? Because it's like, <laughs> guys, so bad. I know you got that antivirus to protect yourselves, but I got bad news. It's uh, how I got in. And, you and, got the AAV. Yeah, anti <laughs> anti. Yeah, I I can't imagine they were doing business with Callus for for much longer than that. I'm also not sure. Like that that seems like it probably is a misconfiguration issue or something to that effect. I can't. I I will try to suspend disbelief that that is actually how that software should be installed because I would think as an antivirus vendor. You probably know the right way to not just blow the doors open on every machine that you're on, um, but I digress. There, there's another. There's an, and I tried. I tried googling for it. I could not find it. So maybe whatever the company is that did this has been scrubbed, uh, has successfully scrubbed the internet 
for for articles because it wasn't a huge deal, but I did think it was particularly funny. I remember hearing or reading a news article about there was some antivirus that was deployed out with the wrong signatures and identified a number of its own DLL files, which is like core library function files, and deleted them. So like basically Uh, new new update goes out for this antivirus uh, software. And it's like, oh my gosh, look at all these infected files. And it's looking at itself and it just deletes itself. (laughs) <laughs> so i i also remember that yeah. story but i didn't remember it that they pushed a configuration and they deleted themselves i thought it was like a virus caused that or something. no no i thought it they, my, they did it themselves my recollection is that like either they changed their heuristics or they accidentally added the like i don't i don't know what the, the that makes more behind sense. it but it was yeah it's basically like a take this loaded handgun and shoot yourself directly in the foot sort of deal Foot guns, it's a term in the industry. Foot guns, foot guns. So those that's that's two examples of just kind of like general software configuration issues. So, you know, I don't want to bash antivirus over the head with it's like, well, you, your software should be perfect because no God software knows is if, perfect. Yeah, if you saw my software, you'd know I have no room to be talking. Um it's not that bad, Chris. Hey, I appreciate that. You're the one maintaining a lot of it for me right, right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are some deeper problems, though, that even if your software is perfect, this is not going to go away. And I think this is, this is the one that you should really think about and understand when considering is antivirus going to really protect me. Look, antivirus, like what Logan said, if it's using heuristics or if it's using machine learning or it's getting really smart about analyzing files that like no in a way that nobody's ever seen before and it's really good whatever if your false positive rate is 1% if your false positive rate is 0.1% let's say that your false positive rate is 0.01% which is to say one out of what every 10,000 times that you look at files you get it wrong and it's like, okay, yes, of these 10,000 times that I've looked at, I'm, I'm right 9,999 times. But that one time I was wrong and I thought that that file was malware when it wasn't and I either deleted it or I quarantined it or I took any sort of action on that file. Do you know how many files there are on a file system? Like on a standard? Like There's a with, lot. There's a lot. Way <laughs> over 10,000. Way over 10,000. So if you were to release antivirus software that had any semblance of false positive rate and was like making the wrong decision, you know what would happen with that software? It would go out of business because there's no way in hell that you're going to install the software across an entire enterprise and then just like randomly be quarantining files across all those machines, crippling the business's ability to operate and then you're going to stick around as a vendor. There's no way. There's no way. So, you have to operate in a way that you know that your false positive rate is way lower than that. You can't have false positives, which is to say you can't get super creative. What you can say is like, I've seen this piece of software before. I know definitively that it is malware. Now, I'm going to make sure that that file doesn't show up anywhere else. Or it's like, I know that this code right here is the piece of code that is related to that malware, if I see that piece of code in any files anywhere, I'm going to quarantine it or I'm going to delete it, whatever. That works. That works. 
because it's like we 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 now we have a human in the loop. We've done some analysis. We know that this file is bad. Therefore, if we see that file anywhere else, we know for sure we're not deleting system files. We're not deleting random files. Anything like that. Um, which is to say that brings us back to the problem of if it's not something that has been seen before, then antivirus isn't going to catch it. There are some, there's some vendors that say they can. I've never seen their stuff work. I am skeptical at best. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. I don't know. I don't know how you can get rid of this false positive problem. And and all of, to, to kind of further reinforce this. So I got this certification um, called the OSCE Offensive Security Certified Expert, and part of that whole course was learning how to evade antivirus. And it actually teaches you a handful of techniques that you can use, super interesting, uh, to evade antivirus. And it actually, it gives you a malware binary and it says, take this and manually obfuscate it so that it does not get caught by antivirus. And that was also part of the test. You had to do it and you had to evade antivirus. And I'll tell you what, I did it and these techniques still work. These approaches still work. They are harder to do. That you know, it is getting tougher to do this. But I'll tell you what, there is enough money to be made to bypass antivirus. So, yeah. antivirus is great for making sure that known bad things are not going to get run on your computer. But new things, new malware, yeah, it's it, that's not that's not what it's meant for. So it's been many years since I've done this, but um, do you know if the Metasploit modules are still effective at obfuscating malware? They are not. Okay. Yeah, they 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 are not. As far as I, at, at least when I worked for when I did penetration testing, we had a custom. We just made some custom stuff because yeah. the standard encoders they're all reversible. Because yeah, anything that makes it into Metasploit is usually pretty quickly caught. The standard encoders they come with pretty quickly caught. Uh, but we just had something that was It's novel. pretty easy to make your own. It's, yeah. it's pretty easy to make your own. And look, it, until you write some malware that goes out and infects millions and millions of machines, it's not going to get enough presence for it to get turned into a signature. Yeah. That's a good point. So, Chris, what, what antivirus do you run? Oh, you're going to put me out there like that, huh? Um, let's see. On OSX, I use Malwarebytes and I only run that every once in a while when it's like if I want... Basically, if I want to know if there's some sort of bad file or it's going, I want to check a directory files or something, throw them in a VM, have Malwarebytes in there, scan the directory and that's it. Um, but that's that's kind of the, the extent of it for me. What, what do you use? Um, on Windows, I use whatever comes default with Windows now. I think it's uh, Defender. That seems to be pretty good. And on Mac OS, I actually use nothing, which I don't know. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to recommend that. But yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's the truth. I I think any real antivirus software is better than no antivirus software. But at the same time, I just... The main thing is keep in mind what this is protecting you from is if there's known bad software out there and you're not getting hit with something new and novel, then it's going to be good at its job. It's going gonna, it's gonna to prevent that from happening. But these new things where it's like, oh, this new exploit drops, it's not yet patched. You're in the initial wave of like parties that are going to get infected. Antivirus is not, not going to save your bacon. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, that's, but, uh, that's the stuff I'm mostly concerned with. Yeah, 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 exactly. I would agree. So what what would you do, Logan, uh, if you're really suspicious of a file? Well, first off, don't open it. <laughs> uh, take a second and think before just clicking on scary things. I normally take suspicious files and upload them to VirusTotal. So VirusTotal is a website which runs... I don't even know how many now, like 30 plus antiviruses against the file you upload. And then you can look at the output of virus total and make a more informed decision as to whether you should open it or not. The vast majority of the time, virus total will say uh, the file is not malware for all of the antiviruses. But sometimes uh, if you're if you're opening a file that you're suspicious enough of to upload to VirusTotal, oftentimes one or two of the AVs used by VirusTotal will have a heuristic hit. Yeah. And then you just have to use your judgment whether you want to open it or not. It might even be good for us to talk about at some point uh, the right ways to sandbox problematic files like if you really do want to open that executable and see what it does how do you do that securely and there are ways to do it but it is that's that's getting into the technical weeds um, it is yeah yeah but <laughs> if you think it's sketchy step one don't open it the note the amount of infections that would be stopped if that was well understood is pretty pretty high yeah and phoning a friend is always an option uh, i have friends who do that all the time and it's a smart thing The three takeaways for today's show are, one, worms are a form of malware that spread their infection in automated fashion. Two, the term worm refers to the infection method and the resulting infections can be used for all sorts of different purposes. And three, having any antivirus is likely better than having nothing, but it won't be a silver bullet to keep you safe. While they can be especially harmful to computers and the people that rely on them, worms are quite the interesting technological weapon. Squirming from machine to machine without any human intervention, they are capable of infecting wide swaths of the internet in very short time spans. Antivirus and keeping your software patched are your best bets for protecting yourself from these devious internet denizens. As in all cases though, neither are a silver bullet. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Security Explained. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for new topics that our audience finds interesting, and you might be able to pick our next show. Feel free to reach out via social media or give us a rating on your listening platform to let us know how we're doing. You can find us on the web at securityexplained.fm or on Twitter at SecExplained. Thanks again, and until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.